And so this morning, we do want to get back to Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. As we continue, really, we're, we're turning the corner this morning in the letter uh, to the Romans, um, as we try to get our mind back focused in on, on the, where Paul has been here with the letter. So today, we're going to kind of introduce a new section of this letter. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And God's and inerrant and sufficient word reads, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. For the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we now ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Lord, as we wade into some dense verses, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us. Lord, we don't want to be people who are just heady, We do want to understand the text, but we also want to know how to apply it to our life and also how to apply it to fulfill the Great Commission. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds and to receive what you have prepared for us this morning. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've simply titled this this morning, The Turning Point, because that's really where we are in the epistle to the Romans. If there is one summary statement, if there is one summary statement that we can make so far through our study through the Epistle to the Romans, it is this. No one can be a Christian until they recognize their hopelessness. No one can be a Christian until they recognize their hopelessness. Paul has been uh, pounding that nail over and over and over for almost three chapters. And here at the turning point of his letter, Paul offsets Romans 1.17 with Romans 3.21. If you remember back to Romans uh, quite some time ago, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said this. I'm sorry, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then Paul spent many, many verses, much ink, expounding that point and and, and making that clear to us. And here at the turning point of Paul's letter, he offsets that with this. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Paul started with saying the wrath of God has been revealed, but he's not going to let us there. He's not going to let us stay in that spot. It's as though he needed us to understand the wrath of God before he can get to the righteousness of God. 
And that's why I think the summary so far is that to be Christian is to understand our hopelessness in light of the wrath of God. But now Paul is going to bring us out of that darkness is what it kind of felt at times and bring us into the light and say, no, no, you're not going to stay there, but I'm going to now reveal to you the righteousness of God. Wrath was revealed. Righteousness is now revealed. And this is where we're going to be, and it's only going to be an introduction this morning, but this is where we're going to be going for the next several chapters to chapter 5 or something like that in Romans. But to, but to do that and to, and to set the stage for what is coming and to wrestle with some of the questions that we have as Christian people. You know, we wrestle with these questions as Christian people, this idea or this of theodicy. And what I mean by theodicy is this, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Also say the reverse of that. Why do good things happen to bad people? We can turn that around. You know, and, and, and many of atheists out there, one of the problems that they have is this idea right here of how can there be a God and evil? How can these two things coexist? If there is a God and this God is omnipotent, all-powerful that we believe he is, and omniscient and all-knowing that we believe that he is, then how can a good God allow evil to exist? Therefore, if there is a God, this God cannot be good. And that's the dilemma. That's the odyssey. That's the problem that many trip on when they think about the deity, when they they think about divine sovereignty. How can those two things both be true? And I can't think of a better place to go than than to Job to kind of flush this out a little bit. And so I'm going to spend just a little bit of time and kind of do a summary or kind of do a flyover of Job to just put this before us again. Something that we're, I'm not going to tell you anything new this morning, um, but it's just to put it before you once again. And in Job chapter 9, we have this question, and that is how can a person be right with God? Isn't that the question each and every one of us has? How can a person be right with God? Because we say we can present ourselves however we want to present ourselves. We can say whatever we want to say, but we go to sleep at night with our own thoughts and within our own heads. And we know that this is the question we must ask. How can a person be made right with a righteous God? That's what Job is saying. And so in the ninth chapter of Job, he continues that thought, and he says, if one wished to dispute with him, with God, if one wished to dispute with God, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Out of a thousand times I dispute with God or have an issue with God, not one time. Paul or Job is saying, will I get an answer? Wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has defied God without harm? It is God who removes mountains. Now listen, this is what Job is acknowledging. And we must acknowledge this. It is God who removes mountains. They do not know how. When he overturns them in his anger, it is he, God, who shakes the earth from its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and puts a seal on the stars who alone stretches out the heavens, who tramples down the waves of the sea. Do you get the image that Job is creating for us? 
Who makes the bear, Orion, Pallades, and the constellations of the south? It is he who does great things, the unfathomable and wondrous works without number. See, Job is wrestling with this idea. How can a person stand before a holy and righteous God at the same time understanding that this God has created and controls everything when it comes to creation, everything when it comes to nature? Now, one of Job's friends, uh, uh, I guess you could call him a friend, is this guy by the name of Bildad, the Shuite. He said this in the 25th chapter of Job. He acknowledged what his buddy Job is saying, dominion all belong to God. Who makes peace in his height? Is there any number to his troops? The answer is no. And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can mankind be righteous with God? Or how can anyone who is born of a woman be pure? If the moon has no brightness, and if the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? You see this idea. You see what they're wrestling with here. And we continue through Job. Go back to the 40th chapter. I'm sorry I don't have an outline for you this morning, but if you write fast, maybe you can catch it. In the 40th chapter of Job, verse 1, Job says, this is, Yahweh then says this. Then Yahweh said to Job, hmm, Job, you want an answer? I have one for you. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who rebukes God give an answer. And then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say to response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not reply, or twice, and I will add nothing more. Now God responds. Job, tighten the belt on your waist like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Will you really nullify my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Do you see what God is asking Job? Job, you're asking questions you don't understand. You're wrestling with this idea of theodicy. You're wrestling with this idea that God has taken absolutely everything from me, and in the way that you're questioning me, you are saying, I am not a good God. You are saying that because you don't understand why, or you don't understand what's happening is happening and why it's happening, Therefore, you are saying, I am not just. Therefore, you are saying, I am not righteous. Therefore, you are saying, I am not good. And that continues on for a while, and then Job has a turning point. Job comes to a turning point that every single person must come to. And it's in the 42nd chapter of Job. It's Job's confession. Job answered Yahweh and said, I know you can do all things. And that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen and I will speak. I will ask you, God, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. 
But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. Did Job's situation change? Not at all at this moment in this time. But Job got a picture of the magnitude of God. And that God is indeed good. And yes, evil exists. But God is good and God is all-powerful and God is in control. Therefore, just because I do not understand the situation, Job says, doesn't mean that you, God, have a plan in it all. And I think that right there, we could close the service with that, I think, and do well. Is to understand that we don't understand. But we trust and we believe in a God who knows all things, who ordains all things, who orchestrates all things, doesn't need our permission, and yet cares deeply more than we will ever know for each and every one of his children. No one can be a true Christian until they recognize that they are powerless to save themselves. We cannot save self. We cannot. Romans chapter 3, where we left off a couple weeks ago, I, I think so. I didn't go back and <clears throat> educate my or, or familiarize myself with where we were. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul had, quoting the Old Testament here, he said, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. They have all turned aside together and have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's where Paul had left it off, and now he's going to turn the corner. And to this helplessness that Paul has created in each and every one of his readers and in each and every one of us, Paul is now going to throw a lifeline. And he does it right here. And probably two of the greatest, I could say this at every time we come across a new verse in a new section of the Bible, but probably two of the greatest verses in all of biblical text. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. This is where Paul is now going, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. And from these verses and a half, and from this right here, I'll introduce this whole new section in just three parts. The first is the, the historical significance. The historical significance of these two verses, and really of two words, and, and really we could distill it down to just one word. And it is the way that it starts out. But now, but now the historical significance of what Paul is saying here can go easily unnoticed. It has been said that we must thank God for the buts of the Bible. I cannot think of many greater buts than what we have right here. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And if you remember again what I've tried to recreate for you this morning on, on where we have been and the way that we felt some Sundays and as we studied through Romans, the first three chapters, I know it's just like getting heavy and getting weighty. And it's like, come on, Paul, ease up a little bit. And here he does with a 
but now. That was then, this is now. It's the historical significance of this turning point. And it starts with now, but now. We have a similar phrasing of that. And really what Paul is drawing to, if we wanted to, we could go there. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. I often preach on this on, for an Easter sermon, for a, um, for a uh, Christmas sermon or something. Where it says, but when the fullness of time came. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that what? So that he might reckon those who were under the law. The great turning point in all of history had just taken place, the birth of Jesus. That was the coming of the Son of God into the world so that we are now living in the new age, the now. The but now that Paul says, it is no longer the old age. It is the new age. It is no longer the Old Testament. It is the New Testament. The old was looking forward to this age, the now. This age has now come, and we are living in it. The Christian faith is not a philosophy. The Christian faith is is not a teaching. The Christian faith is based on the historical significance of these events. The Christian faith is grounded in history, is grounded in the now. The old has been fulfilled with the life, the work, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the Son of God. That's what Paul is saying. All that is encapsulated with these first two words of this turning point, but now that Paul says. The philosophers want to say, you cannot believe all that stuff. You cannot believe that it was a literal birth. You cannot believe that there was a literal virgin birth of Jesus. You cannot believe that Jesus literally died. You cannot cannot believe that Jesus literally rose again from the grave and ascended to God the Father and sitting at his right. You can't believe that. That's that's metaphorical in nature. Paul or, or the biblical writers are making a point. That's not for us to take literal. And yet that's exactly what Paul is implying and saying here. Paul does not leave room for the not literal crowd when he says, but now. Paul says, but now he's turning this corner. I want to go also, maybe because of the season of the week, but I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just just briefly. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12, Paul here says says this. Now, if Christ is preached, that he, Christ, has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, they didn't take none of this literally either. And Paul is saying, hey, we're preaching Christ risen. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. And moreover, we will find ourselves that that we are preaching a false gospel, Paul says. And not only that are we preaching a false gospel, but that our very faith is worthless. And that we are still in these very, we are still very much. Within our sins, Paul says in verse 17. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If we have hope in Christ only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied, Paul says. You see, we take it very literally. When we, this past week, have experienced one of our very own suddenly taken from us, we have this hope. We are not to be most pitied because we have, we take the Bible literally. We take the teachings of Jesus literally. We take the, we take the teachings that Jesus literally was born of a virgin, that Jesus literally lived upon this earth, that Jesus was literally died as a substitutionary atonement for your sins and for my sins, and that he was raised from the grave. Therefore, we too. Therefore, Jan is not dead this morning. She is more alive than she has ever been. Do you believe that? That's the hope that we have. When a 25-year-old is suddenly taken, unexpectedly found in cardiac arrest in a workout room, do we grieve as those who have no hope? Oh, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Why? Because we take the but now. Because we take the Bible for what it says. We take it literally. Everything hinges upon that. Well, let us keep moving. The second point that I want to make this morning is the salvific significance. Salvific just, just leading to salvation, leading to being saved. How is one saved? I mean, that should be a question for us, right? How is it the hope that we can have, that we will rise again, that we will see our loved ones again? How is Someone saved. How are you saved? How am I saved? God shows us his love by sending his son. Yes, God is love. Yes, the Bible teaches us that God is love. But that saves no one. God is love doesn't save anyone. God forgives us our sins. Yes, we must have our sins forgiven. But this too does not in and of itself save anyone. Now track with me. It brings our account to zero. God forgives us our sins. Now I confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John writes a verse that's very dear to us. But that brings the account to zero. We need a positive account. We need a positive balance. Before we can be admitted into heaven, we must be clothed with the righteousness of God. We must be clothed with the righteousness of God. The problem is that we still have the law. And the problem is that we still cannot fulfill the law. This is the problem that Paul was establishing for us. We have the law. The law is good, but we can't fulfill the law. Therefore, we are condemned by the law. The but now does away with the law. Well, no, no, actually, it doesn't do away with the law. Look at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law, Paul says? Nope, not at all. Far from it. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish the law? By proving that we can't possibly live up to the law. We have a problem. We need help. We can't fulfill this law. In Matthew chapter 22, in, Ma in Matthew chapter 22, is the parable. <clears throat> it's the parable of the, um, the marriage feast. And in this parable, you're quite familiar with the story probably, um, but, but just in case, um, 
the, 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 the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, was like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. So there's a king who held a wedding. You see the parallel, obviously, is God and Jesus, who held a wedding feast for his son. And he sent all his slaves, he sent out his workers in to call those who had been invited. There was invitation given to this wedding. And they were unwilling to come. They received the invitation, but they rejected the invitation. And again, he sent his slaves to others and said, hey, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared a dinner. My oxen, my fattened calf, I've got the best food, the best wine. I've got it all. I got the best band, the best music. Come to the wedding. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, but they paid no attention. They went their separate ways. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and treated them abusively. They even killed them. Now the king was very angry, and he sent his armies and destroyed the murderers in the cities of the city on fire. And therefore the slaves sent more slaves and said, the wedding feast is ready. But those king who you invited, they're unwilling to come. They have, you have rejected, they have rejected you. Obviously speaking of the Jewish people, they have rejected you. They won't come. So the king says, well, go into the roads, go into the main road and invite whomever you find there to the wedding feast. The Gentiles, those slaves went into the streets and gathered together all whom they found both bad and good. (laughs) Both bad and good. They didn't do anything to be invited to this wedding. They were good and they were bad, but they were all invited to the wedding hall that was filled with the dinner guests. But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guests, he didn't say, okay, you were good, you were bad. No, he didn't do that at all. What did he do? He came into the wedding, and he looked at them, and he said, oh, I see a man. I, I, I see you're not dressed in the wedding garments. How are you sitting in the wedding feast without the wedding garments? And the man had no answer. He didn't respond to Jesus. He didn't respond to this king at all. Therefore, the king tells us, and Jesus now tells us the point of the parable. Then the king said to the servants, tie his hands and his feet, draw him to the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place, for many are called, but few are chosen. Every single person had received the wedding invitation, but there was only a few chosen. Now, let's back up just a little bit. Come back with me. Bring your mind back a little bit to this guy sitting there in flip-flop shorts and a t-shirt in the wedding. Or maybe he didn't have what, is it, what, what does he mean? You see, in the day, what, what was often said, you could go to Ezekiel and find proof for this, but the king, as you invited people to the wedding to make sure the wedding was attended appropriately, the king would give you garments, wedding garments to wear to the wedding, would give you clothes to wear, proper attire to wear into this wedding. Well, what happened here in this sense, everyone except for this man, evidently, chose to accept those wedding garments and put them on. What we have here is someone who said, yes, I'm a Christian. What we have here is someone who's going through the motions, who sits in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He went to the Christian school. He comes from the Christian parents, but he has rejected the wedding garments. He's rejected the righteousness of God. He's got the wedding. He's in, he showed up. He's saying, yes, I'm a wedding guest. But Jesus says, no, you're not. You have not put on the righteousness of God. That is the point of this particular parable here. 
And that is what Paul is now getting to as we turn this corner. Romans chapter 13. Verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, as created in righteousness and holiness and in truth. You see, as we turn this corner, and but now, Paul has made it very clear that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. But there is a part that we play. Not our terms. They're God's terms. It's not what I want to interpret the biblical text so it fits my cultural narrative. No. It's what does God mean when he says what he says. So that's the historical significance, the salvific significance. Let's now wrap up with this right here, and that's the faith significance. Righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus. Well, we know that. I mean, I mean obviously, that, that's what it says. Um, we're, we're quite familiar with that. But what is faith? What, what then is faith? In Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul will get there eventually. So will we. Romans chapter 7, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin, for I do not understand what I'm doing. I love these verses. For I am not practicing what I preach. For I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, If I do the things I do not want to do, I agree with the law. The law is good. But now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. This is why we cannot settle with an account to zero. It'll never be zero. We need an account to the positive. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, what? To save sinners. Paul said, among whom I am foremost. Now, now, now listen. It is not our faith that saves us. It is the righteousness of God that saves us. It is not our faith that saves us. It is the righteousness of God that saves us. Faith is the instrument of my justification only. It is not the cause of my justification. The cause of my justification is the work that Jesus has done. And that's where Paul is now going to go. If I think my faith saves me, then 
my faith becomes my work. If I think that there's anything good that I can do, if I think that when I show up at the pearly gates as we like to talk and St. Peter says, let me in, why should I let you in, James? Well, you know, I was a preacher for Pete's sakes. Am I allowed to say for Pete's sakes? Maybe not, Peter. Strike that from the record. <laughs> My mom probably wouldn't approve of that. But anyways, you right? And so if there's anything that I can say, if I say because of this, because of that, be- no. But if I got the weathered garments on, if, I've got, if I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that is the only way. You're saying that faith is not based on your ability to answer what we say. You say, well, my faith saves me. Well, because you have the ability to answer the question correctly? Is that what saves you? Because you've chosen to answer the, correctly, the question correctly and, and these people have not? See, faith becomes works. That's what Paul is now going to hammer this point over and over. And so will I, by the way. And that's what he's going to hammer over and over and over and over. Faith is an instrument. Faith is the instrument. Faith is not the cause. The cause of my faith is the work of Christ alone. Paul has spent almost three chapters laying the foundation for the core teaching in this epistle to the Romans. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, what do we say then? What do we say to this faith that we have been given? Well, let's say somebody gives you anything, an extraordinary gift, whatever it may be. What do you say? What do you say? Thank you. That's our only response to this faith. That's the only response that we have. It is not anything that we have done, but it is what we have received. And the only thing we can say is thank you. How do thankful people live? That convicted me this week. How do thankful people live? Every single one of us have been given so much. Let us be thankful. Father, I thank you for your text. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the work of the cross. Father, I thank you that you don't require of me my ability to save myself because I certainly could not. And Father, these are deep, hard things. And I am with Job. I don't understand but I surrender to them. Father, I accept faith as the truths that you teach. I accept them as truth, and I surrender to them. That's all you ask of us. Father, help me. Help each and every one of us who's wearing the wedding clothes, who's wearing the righteousness of Christ. Help us to be thankful and help us to reflect that as we leave these walls, as we find ourselves in the workplace, wherever we are, Father, people that are grateful, people that are thankful. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.